0: Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for all of Scripture. It's inspired by God and it's given for our admonition. Lord, and when we uncover now this portion of your word, a man that we have heard about, some of us are familiar with him, others of us are not so familiar. We pray, Lord, that his life and the life lessons that he brings out in his writing would speak to us in a way, Lord, that would change the way we think about life and the way we relate to you. Thank you, Lord, for the body of Christ and the comfort it is coming together and being encouraged mutually. And Father, we pray for this time, this session together, as we continue to worship by giving you our attention in the Word. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, whenever I teach a a study or a series or a book of the Bible... I've discovered that God doesn't want to let that opportunity go to waste, and He will often allow me to experience uh, what I'm teaching or be tested in what I'm about to teach. So, for instance, if I'm doing a study on love, I might encounter that week some very hard-to-love person. (laughs) Or if it's about peace, I might be challenged in my own peaceful state of mind and trust and rest in the Lord. And so it is with this series that we're about to go through. You know, I've been studying Job for months, um, or months ago, for a series of weeks, just in my personal devotional time, and I started seeing things and writing things down and outlining it. And I thought, boy, I'd like to do a a study on the book of Job. And um, I shared it with my senior staff and sort of gave them the outline. And this is way before... Uh, they ever discovered a tumor in Lenia way before we had blood work and CAT scans and chemotherapy. And in one of the um, tests, uh, my wife turned to me and she laughed and she said, You would have to pick the book of Job, wouldn't you? <laughs> you know, Job is the book that nobody wants to read. Because Job opens up the possibility to us a possibility we don't want to entertain, and that is the possibility of extreme suffering. I'm going to share a little story with you that I found in a Max Lucado book. It's a true story, a little humorous story, about Chippy the parakeet. Chippy the parakeet never saw it coming. One second he was peacefully perched in his cage, the next he was sucked in, washed up, and blown over. The problems began when Chippy's owner decided to clean Chippy's cage with the vacuum cleaner. She removed the attachment from the end of the hose and stuck it in the cage. The phone rang and she turned to pick it up. She barely said hello when Chippy got sucked in. The bird owner gasped, put down the phone, turned off the vacuum and opened the bag. There was Chippy, still alive but stunned. Since the bird was covered with dust and soot, she grabbed him and raced to the bathroom, turned on the faucet, and held Chippy under running water. And then, realizing that Chippy was soaking and shivering, she did what any compassionate bird owner would do. She reached for the hair dryer and blasted the pet with hot air. Poor Chippy never knew it hit him. A few days after the trauma, the reporter who initially had written about the event contacted Chippy's owner to see how the bird was recovering. Well, she replied, Chippy doesn't sing much anymore. He just sits and stares. Well, I read about Chippy and I thought about Job. Chippy is the bird equivalent of Job. Job never saw it coming. It happened all at once. This great loss in his life that took his song away. Now, we're going to look at Job in this series, but we're going to do it from a totally different angle. We're going to look at it from the angle of Job meeting Jesus, and I'll explain what I mean by that in today's study. But you know, a lot of people, when they come to the book of Job, only read the first two chapters. Skip the rest, or or perhaps read the last chapter or two where there's a closing resolve and dialogue. There's a whole bulk that is left out. What we're going to do is visit several chapters... To deal with several several issues that Job was going through. Let's get a sampling of what was going on in his life so we understand where we're going. Verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him, Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? And Satan said to the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking in their oldest brother's house, and a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding besides them. And when the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Now, there's just a few things that I want you to notice about Job in this introductory study that sort of lays the foundation and paints a descriptive picture. first, and the first few verses bear this out, Job was a significant man. A significant man. Notice how the story begins. It says, there was a man. I want you to notice that this is not an allegory. This is not... Um, a myth. This is not some typology or parable, as some people say. This was a real man who had real issues in real life. It was Lord Byron who said, truth is always strange. It is stranger than fiction. And this is no fiction. This is truth. And it is a strange truth that happens to Job. Now, it's not allegory for a few reasons. Job will be mentioned by the prophet Ezekiel and by the New Testament author James as a real example of something that really happened. That would not be the case if this were just a myth or an allegory. Also, there are people's names and specific places that are mentioned in this book. Again, that is not typical of ancient allegory. This really happened. Now, some people get thrown by the place that Job was at. In verse 1, there was a man in the land of Uz. And they look at that, and they smile, and they go, Oh, come on. Like, there was a real place named Uz? What, and Job was the wizard of Uz? <laughs> well, Uz was a real place. In fact, it's the ancient name of what later on became Edom, where the Edomites lived. And that is today modern Jordan. Southwest Jordan was Edom, and before that it was the land of Uz. Here's the point. Because Job is a real story about a real man with real problems, it will help us navigate through similar waters in life. Because of its reality. Now, the Bible is filled with such examples. Real men, real women with real problems in life, their lives are on display. They serve as examples for us, whether they did something right or they did something wrong, whether they're in the hall of fame or the hall of shame, their life is on display. We learn from their example. Paul will write in Romans 15, Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. They give us hope and encouragement as we patiently wait for God's promises. And that's the reason why the Bible is not written like a theology text. That would not satisfy us. This is the reason the Bible isn't just a book of laws and rules and regulations. That wouldn't help us. But when we read of people who act and react... According to life situations, that is helpful to us. And by the way, that's one of the reasons we experience trials and suffering. Did you know that? That God allows our lives to be on display, to show people. People would much rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. And when people observe the way we act and react to life situations, it goes far. Uh, Paul writes about our... Tribulation in 2 Corinthians 1, and he says that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Dr. A.B. Simpson, who was the founder of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, wrote, You will have no test of faith that will not fit you to be a blessing. I've never had a trial. But when I got out of the deep river, I found some poor pilgrim on the bank that I was able to help by that very experience. There was a man named Job. Now, Job was no ordinary man. And uh, his goodness was not an ordinary goodness. This guy was an exceptional man. So much so that God is willing to showcase Job Before even Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Now go back to verse 3. Notice it says at the end of that, "...so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East." The Hebrew word is gadol for greatest. And gadol means literally the largest or the heaviest. Now that does not mean he was a fat man... The idea is his reputation. This guy was a heavyweight, is the idea. He was a substantive man. He was a significant man. Uh, Job, in Ezekiel 14, is compared to the patriarch Noah and the prophet Daniel. That's the kind of heavyweight, that's the kind of class he was in spiritually. Also, in James chapter 5, he is the example of spiritual endurance. So we have a guy who is significantly powerful, significantly wealthy, and significantly spiritual. If we just had Job 1, verses 1 through 5, we would say, this is the guy everyone wants to be. But verse 6 takes the story south. Now things happen that are completely out of Job's control. I think something else in the description of Job that will help us before we get into his suffering. That is, not only was Job real, not only was he a significant man, but he's an ancient man. Did you know that many scholars believe that the book of Job could be the oldest book in the Bible? Uh, It is placed chronologically in the patriarchal period between 2000 B.C. and 1000 B.C. It's very ancient. There's a few clues as to why that is. There is no reference in this book to the law of Moses. There's no reference in this book to Israelite history. The name for God in the book of Job is El Shaddai. It's the same name that is used in the earliest portions of the book of Genesis. The age to which Job lives is roughly the same age as the early patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The use of ancient names in the book of Job, like Uz and Sheba for Arabia and Tima, are the same names that were used in the most ancient documents of that period. Also, you noticed in the first few verses that Job's wealth is not measured in gold or silver, but by livestock. That's how Abraham's wealth was also measured. And also in verse 5, Job functions as a priest to his own family. Also typical of that period. So if you were going to fit Job on a chronological scale, you would probably place this story between Genesis 11 and Genesis 12. After the fall of the Tower of Babel and just before the rise of Abraham. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is this. Job was a really ancient dude. And you're thinking, so what? Here's the so what. The problems that you and I face in life that are similar to Job, these are problems that every generation all the way back from time immemorial have faced You are not the first person to experience what you're experiencing. I know suffering can be very isolating and alienating, and we're we're tempted so often to think, nobody has faced this. Uh, A lot of people have, in fact, have from the very beginning. Now let's get to the second point, which is really what we think of when we think of Job. Job was not only a significant man, Job was a suffering man. That's what he's known for. In fact, I'll put it this way. No one deserved suffering any more than Job. Job, of all the people, deserved it the least. But few people have suffered more than Job. No one deserved suffering less than Job few people have suffered more than Job. Now that is the fact that bothers us. That is the truth that unhinges us. When you have a very morally upright, righteous believer in God who suffers as much as Job has, that throws us for a loop. Now the book of Job presents a single episode in his life, a prolonged episode. It lasted months, maybe even a year. We don't know exactly, but it was one long episode. In chapter 7, verse 3, Job refers to his months of futility. And uh, chapter 1 and 2 show us a series of disasters. His children are killed, his livestock is seized, his property is destroyed. If that isn't enough, in chapter 2 he loses his health. He loses his health. He has sores, running sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And if that isn't enough, after all of that loss, he has these three friends who come along who are armchair philosophers, Monday morning quarterbacks. They are not experiencing what Job is experiencing, Ah, but they're there to tell him why he is suffering. These are the young theology students who think they know it all, but they've never been through life at all. And they're going to tell Job why he suffered. And they sound so philosophical. But they're all wrong. Socrates once said something interesting. He said to his young students, By all means, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll become very happy. If you get a bad wife, you'll become a philosopher. (laughs) These guys were philosophers. And the bulk of this book, from chapter 3 to chapter 31, are the discussions between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. Three cycles of speeches. Job will speak, one will speak, Job will speak, another will speak, Job will speak, another will speak, etc. But, that's not all. You see, a lot of times that's what we think, that's what Job is. It's all about suffering, personal suffering. Oh, it's way more than that. Because Job's suffering will give rise to other things. Questions. Puzzlements. Quandaries queries, perplexities that Job will be crying out for answers for. Job's suffering makes him think deeply about life. And in this book, you hear him think out loud. You watch as Job wrestles with the complexities and the issues of life, not just suffering. There's more. In fact, I have found eight different questions or issues or anxieties that are dealt with in this book, and that will form our series for the next several weeks. The first issue is about Satan. How much freedom does Satan have? I mean, if he's this chained creature, why is that chain so long? What is he allowed to do? Chapter 1 and chapter 2 takes us to the invisible battle, the invisible conversation Job uh, doesn't know anything about. God and Satan are discussing Job. Job didn't know about it. And it brings up this issue. What do you do when everything you thought you knew about life doesn't make any sense? Ever been there? When you're young, everything's packaged and predictable, and you've got your theology down. And then life does one of these things. Everything's turned on end. Now what do you do? Now where do you go? Now how do you live? A second issue this book deals with is, of course, suffering. Why do the righteous suffer? And when you suffer loss, great loss, what do you do with God? How do you still believe in God? Now, Job doesn't just lose His health. He loses his health. He loses the relationship he has with his wife. He loses all of his children, all of what he owns. Reminds me of an ad that I saw in a newspaper. It said, Lost dog with three legs, blind in left eye, missing right ear, tail broken, and recently injured. Answers to the name Lucky. (laughs) A misnamed dog, wouldn't you say? Job was not a lucky person. But God was in control, even as he allowed Satan to have access to Job. But there's more than that. The book brings up the issue of sin and righteousness. Job, in chapter 9, asks this question. How can a man be righteous before God? You see, Job, while he's suffering, discovers his own inward thoughts and he sees how wicked he really is and how perfect God is. And so he asks the question, so how can anyone be righteous before God? He struggles with that. Also, he struggles in this book with the need for a representative, uh, an umpire, a lawyer, a broker, someone who will mediate between himself and God. He cries out for that in chapter nine. Also in chapter 14, Job asks about death and immortality, life after death. He asks, if a man dies, will he live again? Now, when Job asks that question, he's not asking it like some young seminary student. He's asking it as an isolated sufferer facing his own death. He thinks, I'm going to die soon and be buried in this earth. If a man dies, will he live again? Not only that, but Job struggles with the invisible God. The invisible God. As I mentioned, suffering can be so alienating and so isolating. And through this book, Job cries out and cries out and can't figure this out. And in Job, verse or chapter 23, he says, Oh, that I knew where I might find God. I go forward, and He is not there. I go backward, but I cannot perceive Him. You see the problem? Here I am, living in a visible world, experiencing physical pain, while believing in a God that I never see. He's struggling with that. So as Job suffers, he thinks out loud, and those things that he thinks out loud will be the subject of our focus. Oscar Wilde once wrote, suffering is a revelation. One discovers things one never discovered before. And Job makes a lot of discoveries, some that he does not like. It takes us to the third point this morning, and that is that Job was a searching man. So Follow me. The suffering prompts Job's searching to some of the deepest issues of life. But do you know that Job never finds answers? Now that's the most frustrating truth. He searches, but Job never finds answers. Job gets no satisfactory answer from his wife. Her solution is, do you still hold your integrity? Curse God and die. Imagine being married to that while you're suffering. Job gets no good answers from his three friends. They postulate and they ponder and they come up with all these lame excuses like, well, you must be a really wicked sinner posing as a righteous person. In fact, Job gets no real answers from God. God speaks at the end of the book. But... It's not the kind of answer that would bring resolve. God simply says, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job, where were you when I created and laid the foundations of the earth? Job is put in his place and he repents in sackcloth and ashes and gives glory to God. However, the deep heart cries of Job are not answered. In fact, they're not even answered in the Old Testament. It's not until we get to the New Testament, and it's not until we get to Jesus Christ that we find resolve to the deep issues of life as articulated by Job. Hence the series, Job Meets Jesus. And that's going to be our approach. We're going to look at the heart cry of Job, the issue, the perplexity, and see how Jesus steps out to give resolve to those deep issues of life. I'll give you an example. In chapter 23, when he's wrestling with God being invisible, and Job says, Oh, that I might, oh, that I knew where I might find God. Now, that's an issue that is answered in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Or when Job cries out about human sin and in Job 9 says, How can a man be righteous before God? Now that is answered in the death of Jesus Christ. For Paul will say, By one man's death, many are made righteous. Or when Job cries out for death and immortality, If a man dies, will he live again? Job 14. That will be answered by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will never die. All of the deep perplexities, questions, and issues that Job asks and that all men ask find their ultimate resolve in Christ. Here's the grand point. If there were no New Testament, if there were no Jesus Christ, we would have all of these questions... All of these quandaries with no answer, no resolve. We'd have a great story, wonderful poetry, all the things that people say of the book of Job. But we would have all of these cries and questions dangling in history without any answer. We would have simply the Old Testament equivalent of Chippy the parakeet, a guy sitting there stunned and struggling. So our approach will be each week to take a cry of Job and see the answer of Jesus. And when we do, things clear up. Life clears up and it brings us satisfaction. It can't be found anywhere else. I found something really interesting this week. The Bureau of Standards in Washington, D.C. reported that a fog that would lie in a valley or even in a city that would be about 100 feet thick, seven square city blocks, is composed of only one cup of water. One cup of water, that's all. But dispersed into 60 billion droplets. Spread over an area, completely can take away your ability to see. Sounds familiar? A lot of people allow cupfuls of trouble to obscure their whole life. It's just a cup. It's just a little roadblock. It can be dealt with. It can be overcome. And God desires that we live in the sunshine, the light, which is Christ. Now, I don't know where you are this morning in your walk with the Lord, where you are in your journey with Him. You might be facing the trial of your life. You might be going through something that you've never faced before and there's a huge question mark looming in your horizon. You might be facing loss. Maybe you have lost a job or lost a vision or lost a spouse. Or perhaps you're struggling with an issue, a question, a piece of truth that's got you bogged down, that's got you wrestling. You don't understand. And perhaps you're the kind of person who says, I I have to have answers to this before I can go any further. Now, I completely understand that. I'm the inquisitive sort. But I'm going to ask you to do something today that's counterintuitive, especially if you have not yet committed your life to Christ. Especially if you're the person who says, well, I I have to have answers to some of my questions first and then maybe I'll consider Christ and maybe perhaps I'll commit my life to him at some point. But I'm going to ask you to receive Christ before you get specific answers to those issues and quandaries and questions because you have something going on inside your heart your soul some deep cry some sense of dissatisfaction that cannot be resolved merely with the mind it's okay to have those questions it's okay to deal with them and it might sound counterintuitive but come to to trust in christ first i've had a few different occasions where i've heard almost the identical line One was a lady in Huntington Beach, California. I was witnessing to her and she said, Well, I have a few questions about God. This, this, that. And she started naming them. And I said, You know what? Those are all good questions. But tell you what. I can tell that something's going on inside your heart. You know that you want to know why you're here. You want to know that your sins are forgiven. You want to know peace. Yet you have these questions. All of them are legitimate. Instead of me answering these questions... Why don't you pray right now to receive Christ as your Savior? Then, at a time in the future, in a few days, let's sit down question by question and go through them. She said, Deal. I led her in a simple prayer. She prayed to receive Christ. She lifted her head up from her hands, wet with tears afterwards. And she said, I don't have any questions. They suddenly have gone. I had a man tell me that about a month ago, a few weeks ago here. He came forward to receive Christ. And he said, I had a whole list of questions to ask somebody this morning. I still have them, but they suddenly are not as relevant anymore. Because the deepest heart cry to know God and be right with God and be forgiven were met. Oh, you you can still bring that list out. You can still talk about those intellectual stumbling blocks. But I challenge you. Give your life to Christ now. Don't wait any longer. And then look at those things one by one. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are starting to look at a man and to look at life through the lens of a man who lived long ago, but whose life and application is as relevant as the morning newspaper. Lord, the things that he struggled with are the things people still struggle with, whether in philosophy classes or seminary courses or going to a doctor's office with a huge lump in one's throat and question mark in one's heart. This is life. And there are answers, and the ultimate answer is found in Christ. The ultimate answer for forgiveness and hope And the future and life after death is found in Christ. He's why we sing. He's why we sing and why the song is still in our hearts no matter what we face. But Lord, some here don't have that hope or some have neglected that hope or some have even walked away from Christ. Following Him as a young child, going to church and then watching as life unfolded and things didn't seem to make sense, and questions sounded louder in their ears than the answers they had heard in their past. But Jesus is risen from the dead and still powerful and able to change. And Father, we pray that you would impart life and light to hungry, searching hearts. As our heads are bowed, and we are not looking around, we're not thinking about anyone else in this room except our own selves. And as we look inside, and we get in touch with who we really are and what we really feel, and maybe some of you are honest enough to say, What I feel and what I see isn't great. I want More, I want to know that there is more to life than what I've already experienced. I'd like to know a freedom and a forgiveness. I'd like to know what it is to have hope. Strangely enough, that's exactly what God wants for you as well. So these two desires have met in the same place and time. What's left for you to do is to acknowledge that you need Him. God only works on invitation. So if you are willing to admit that you need Him, you need to give your life to Christ, you need to become a Christian, you need to surrender your life to Him, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand up as we're praying, as our heads are bowed, raise it up right now. And you're saying, Lord, I'm willing. I I, I make this step. God bless you and you, ma'am, on my left. And in the middle and in the front. Just raise your hand up saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to surrender. God bless you, ma'am. Anyone else? In the back. And in the family room. In the balcony. Lord, all around this room... Our people that you love, that Jesus died for. And Father, we pray as they discover your plan, they would discover your peace in the midst of any storm, any issue that they face. Wherever you are, if you raised your hand this morning, wherever that acknowledgement lies, would you just simply receive Christ as your Savior right now, right where you're seated? Just utter a prayer in your heart or out loud and just say to Him, Lord, I give you my life. I know that I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the dead for me. I turn from my past, I turn from my sin, and I turn to you and I receive you as my Savior and as my Lord. The one who died for my sins and the one whom I now allow to be ruler of my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and give me power to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org.